Hey everyone, Brandon Schrand here. I want to give a few more shout outs here at the top of this episode to those who have left reviews or who have otherwise supported the show. For this episode, I want to thank Glenda Bull, Tannis Walters, Jennifer Don, Eric Lemke, W. Copley, and HM1395. Your support and reviews mean more than you know. If you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts, consider doing so. You may get a shout out on an upcoming episode. Also, I want to begin with an apology for the delay in episode release. As frustrating as this may be to you, please know that the delay has been for good reason or reasons relating to critical new information that has just come to light. In fact, because of new information that has come forth, I had to pivot and rewrite this entire episode twice. That said, I also want to take this moment to thank our graphic designer and investigator and web-savvy genius Sam Sawyer for designing and launching our new website and for her continued help on the cases. If you haven't checked out our new site, you should. And while you're there, consider buying some merch. Buying merch is a great way to spread the word about these cases, support the show, honor the victims, and support the installation of memorial park benches in the name of the LC Valley victims. And on this latter note, I'm excited to announce that I have been in touch with Dwayne Paris, mayor of Asotin, Washington, the town from which Christina White vanished, and he's totally on board with the idea. So we are set to install the first bench this spring in Christina's honor. I'll keep you posted on those details and the date of the unveiling. Also new to our merch store is the original musical score for the Snake River Killer podcast, a full-length album by the Young Knight Drifters. Please check it out. I think you'll like it. And in case you missed it, my interview on Bob Ruff's and Erica Cantor's show, True Crime Binge, was an absolute pleasure and an honor. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can find a link to the show on our website's landing page. Just look for the banner at the top of the screen. And on this note, I have to apologize to Tina Landry Adi, one of our researchers. Bob had asked me about our team, and because I was nervous about being on the show, I forgot to mention her name, for which I've been kicking myself ever since. So, apologies, Tina. And finally, you should know that among the dozens of tipsters who have contacted me since the podcast debut in October of 2022, one has emerged in the past couple of weeks who has significant information, documents, and serious connections to, well, all the right people when it comes to these cold cases. This person who identifies as Orion first reached out to me a few weeks ago, and let me just say that it has not been easy to establish trust on either side. At first, I thought Orion was actually Lance, weirdly enough, but through some back and forth using end-to-end -end encryption on WhatsApp, I think we're finally at a tentative place of mutual trust, and what Orion has shown me in the past week or so has led me to believe that this person is legit. Oh, and one more thing. As we move ahead, it will be necessary that I start using Lance's full name, Lance Jeffrey Voss. That said, let's dive in. The Snake River Killer podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. This episode contains graphic content and references physical violence and sexual trauma of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. 
Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. on the porch and she waved goodbye and that was the last time I saw her. Concerning the Diane Taylor case, there are a couple of things that I want to touch on before we move forward. First, I was curious as to how Gloria even found Diane's case in the first place and tied it back to Lance. My interest in how she made those connections goes way beyond mere curiosity though. I think walking through her process is critical because while we are focusing on the known cases already linked to him by law enforcement, we don't know if there are other unknown victims out there who were in his orbit and who have gone missing or who have been killed. These are the unknown unknowns. And if there are unknown victims out there, then any one of them might hold crucial evidence that could unravel the rest of the known cases. And that is why we've put more maps and a comprehensive timeline of Lance's life and movements on our website, snakeriverkiller.com. Take a look. Maybe some of our listeners happen to be living in his general orbit and knew of someone who went missing or who was killed. If so, please reach out. But for now, I want to turn to Gloria and her process. It was a flute for one. It really was a flute. I was outside. I was doing some things in our yard and I got a phone call from a friend and she said, um, I know how much you like to do research. You should check this site out. Newspapers.com. It does historical newspapers and, you know, you might look at it and see what you could do with it. And I'm like, okay. So I came in and while I was on the phone with her, it had a seven day free trial. So I signed up for it. And I walked off and did something else. And seven days later, I'm charged. So I'm like, okay, well, I guess I better use this. So I started using it. And it was really fascinating. I knew that something had happened in Chicago because he just, him being the only child, period, just he was the only one to go into the Navy in 1965. You know, he wasn't drafted. So let's push that off the table he went in voluntarily. So I thought that was strange. I thought there's got to be something there that we're not seeing. And I came up with Diane Taylor and I started reading the addresses and where it happened and method of, of death. And was like, okay, I think this is something. I really do. My gut's telling me this is something. So I contacted the Chicago Police Department. I want to give a shout out to them that they are the most polite, just upstanding department. They didn't hang up on me. They took my call. I had to figure out which precinct handled mm. it. And um, I talked to a Sergeant Kevin Bruno and um, Detective John Raitina. But Sergeant Bruno was my main contact um, when this started. And I explained to him Lance's history 
And I said, you know, this is where he he grew up. This is his address. He's very close to this. And so he took my information. He said, let me call you back in a couple hours. And I mm-hmm. said, well, I hope you do. I wouldn't waste your time. And he did call me back. And he said, Lance is not a very nice person, is he? And I said, no, no, he's not. And so I put him in touch with Detective Jackie Nichols. And um, he contacted her. And a few days later, she called me and she never calls. We text, you know, if I have something, I'll send it to her email or via text. And so she called me and I thought that was really unusual. And she goes, you got a minute? Sure. And so she said, we believe you found Lance's first victim. Now that we have a sense of how Gloria found Diane Taylor and tied her murder back to Lance, I want to turn to a few loose threads in this case that bear some scrutiny. Remember the heartbreaking detail of Diane's best friend, Mary Manning, speaking of Diane in the present tense as though she were still alive? And recall how she drew the reporter's attention to Diane's blue two-wheeled bicycle. Well, evidently, Diane's bike had been stolen on July 9th, a little under a month before she was killed. Mary Manning's mention of this bike leads me to believe that either the bike was recovered or that this blue bike was a new bike replacing the stolen one. Why do I mention the bicycle? Well, for a few reasons. First, as our researcher Tina found, in 1963 and 1964, there was a rash of bicycle thefts in the Austin neighborhood, and you can see an array of the newspaper clippings describing these thefts on our website under articles and links. Specifically, it appears that two or more bikes were stolen from the Austin YMCA. Now, to be honest, when Tina first alerted me of these thefts, I didn't know what to make of them, and their connections to the case seemed pretty remote and tenuous, at least to me at the time. But the more I think about it, the more I am seeing how they might fit into the case. First, given the tenor and tone of the articles, it appears that this spate of bicycle thefts wasn't normal. In fact, there is the hint of be on the lookout alarm in the articles, suggesting that these thefts were a new phenomenon, drawing concern from neighbors and the police alike. So there is that, the conspicuous uptick of the stolen bicycles in Lance's neighborhood in 63 and 64. Second, we know that later in life, Lance was infatuated with motorcycles, cars, and mechanics in general. He at one point ran a short-lived motorcycle repair side hustle out of the 503 2nd Street house in Asotin, Washington. And obviously bicycles are the clear precursor or gateway drug, if you like, to motorcycles, particularly for all manner of gearheads into that kind of thing. Third, this isn't the only time we've discussed bicycles when it comes to these cases. I mean, recall Christina White's missing white 10-speed bicycle with the plate that allegedly read Asotin 128. Recall also how Kristen David's bicycle was never found. Now, I don't know if there is any there there when it comes to these connections, but it's something that has stuck out to me. And given the complexities of these cases, I do think it's important to throw light on any potential through lines whenever they occur, even if it's just to take them off the table and clear up the picture a bit. These through lines, the recurring bicycles, the missing clothes, the strange license plates, the classified ads, the recurrence of the cult and Dungeons and Dragons, music, the theater, photography, these are all things at least to keep our eyes on. But there could be another potential connection between Lance and the bikes, though now it is a bit opaque and still in the area of speculation. But we're digging into it. 
Exactly a year after Diane's murder, and around the same time the bikes were disappearing from the Austin neighborhood, four neighborhood boys had an altercation with businessman Charles Verney outside of his office not far from Lance's house. One of the teens then threatened Verney and his wife with their lives. Afterwards, a young man kept calling the Verneys, threatening to kill them if they talked to the police. Following the encounter and despite the threats, Verney reported the incident to law enforcement. Five youths were round up by the cops and Verney ID'd four of them, though the newspaper did not name the boys. What does this have to do with our case? Well, you should know that Lance, who was by all accounts highly intelligent, may have been getting into trouble early in his high school years. Our confidential source, Orion, has brought to my attention a document that may bear this out and could go a long way in establishing Lance's frame of mind around the time of Diane's murder. And it's a piece of information that frankly caught me flat-footed. According to official Austin High School transcripts that Orion was able to track down in Chicago, Lance Voss had to repeat the 10th grade. Yeah, you heard that correctly. This otherwise intelligent bookish kid apparently flunked his sophomore year. And how old are you when you hit the 10th grade? That's right, 15. Why exactly he had to repeat the 10th grade is unclear from the documentation. But for me, there had to have been some underlying root cause or causes for him to flunk his 10th grade year. From everything we know about him, it wasn't that he lacked the intelligence to metabolize a sophomore curriculum and pass his classes. No, I think it was something else. Maybe as Tina suggested, he was getting into trouble in the neighborhood, and that may well be. But even if that were the case, what was driving his impulse to that trouble? Related question. What was going on in his life that caused this academic failure? Was it something at home? Was it his stepfather? Was it his mother? Something potentially caused a seismic shift within his psyche. I mean, look at the photos of a very young Lance Voss and then compare those to 15-year-old Lance, whose gaze seems at that point hardened, flinty, and reptilian somehow. You can see these photos on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, person of interest. I mention this potential shift in Lance's psyche because, well, hear me out. When he's sitting in a room at the YMCA on a Thursday afternoon in August of 63, on the cusp of having to re-enter his sophomore year as a quote-quote flunky, a high school failure, Lance, who saw and continues to see himself as someone with superior intelligence, could have been seething, especially if he had been teased by his peers for having to repeat the 10th grade, a bullying tactic common at the time. His inadequate academic status coupled with whatever catalyst that led to his dissatisfactory status very well could have made him a ticking time bomb. Then enter a little girl who wants him to unwrap her lollipop, and when he tells her to buzz off, she kicks him. That kick could have been the pistol's hammer striking the primer and the bullet, the pin pulled from the grenade, the struck match. All we know for certain is Lance had to repeat the 10th grade. We just don't know why. But that's not all. Not only did Lance flunk the 10th grade, he never even finished high school. Instead, he dropped out and enlisted in the Navy at age 17. This was two years after Diane Taylor's murder. Boys could enlist in any of the armed services if they weren't 18, but they needed parental permission. You should also know that patriotism alone wasn't the core driver behind a lot of 17-year-olds joining up during this period. 
Rather, many of these underage enlistees were troublemakers, truants, and otherwise teenaged angsty kids whose recurring scrapes with the police eventually forced juvenile court judges to issue what was becoming a common ultimatum, go to juvie or join the military. I know this to be a fact because one of my uncles was literally faced with the same choice, juvie or war. My uncle, like most kids in these scenarios, chose Vietnam because at least with Vietnam, you got paid. Gloria, however, has an alternate and potentially more troubling hypothesis for why Lance dropped out of high school and enlisted. She wonders if Lance's mother, Jane, suspected her only child of being responsible for Diane Taylor's murder, either by seeing his picture in the paper or by finding something like rings or glasses in his room or bloodstains on a shirt cuff or maybe a knife under his bed or if she knew he was unaccounted for between 2 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. on Thursday, August 1st or any combination of all the above and therefore wanted to not just get him out of Chicago but out of the country. Well, then signing him up for the military would be a good way of doing that. Now, before you dismiss outright this theory that somehow Jane, Lance's mother, was in on a cover-up of some sort, I want to draw your attention to a specific documentary source that Orion, our confidential source, has provided me recently. And what that document suggests, at the very least, is something peculiar in Jane's mindset and behavior in the weeks following Diane's murder. The document is highly sensitive, and if I can put it on the website, I will. But for now, this is what you should know. On August 27, 1963, just three weeks after Diane Taylor's body was found, Jane and 15-year-old Lance suddenly pick up and leave the country, crossing the border into Canada. The reason for the trip is simply listed as, quote, vacation, end quote. And how long was this vacation, you ask? Good question. It was one day, a one-day vacation. They returned to Chicago on August 28th. And to me, that's the inexplicable part here. A one-day vacation. The closest Canadian waypoint from Chicago is Windsor, Ontario, and that's a four and a half hour drive by today's travel standards, more likely six in 1963, or 12 hours round trip, which, after shaving off time to sleep, makes for a pretty short and travel-heavy vacation. If they took a train, it would likely have been even longer. Now, they could have flown. That's a possibility. The difficult part is that we just don't know which city they traveled to. It just says Canada. One could argue that perhaps Jane had family in Canada, and that's why they ventured across the border. But Gloria, Tina, and I have all traced the family ancestry on Lance's father, stepfather, and mother, and there are no known ties to Canada. Perhaps Jane had a friend there and wanted to make a quick weekend trip over. Maybe. But August 27th was a Tuesday. Perhaps Jane had an appointment or interview. If so, then why not list that as the reason on the document and not vacation? Ultimately, I'm left with a razor-sharp question that must be asked. Why? Why the sudden trip to Canada three weeks after Diane was murdered? Why only one day? Why go on a weekday and not a weekend if it was truly a vacation as stipulated on the document? When I saw that, my mind just started racing with questions going wild with speculation. Like, what if Jane found the murder weapon and knew the most foolproof way of distancing the weapon from her son was to drive it across an international border and dump it? I know, I know, that sounds completely out there. I get it, and honestly, the trip could have been totally innocent. And only conspicuous for its timing and its brevity. Meanwhile, I've been trying to find the actual border crossing documents to corroborate this trip, but haven't had any luck in my early searches. 
Further, I assume by 1963, Jane was traveling under her married name, which was Neputy, spelled like deputy, but with an N as in November. But she could have been traveling under Voss or her maiden name, Nelson. So that kind of makes searching a bit more complicated. But if any of you are adept at searching for these kind of records online, maybe consider giving it a go. And if you do, let me know what you find. And it is here that I want to pivot. For purposes of this episode, I'm going to stop the chronological clock here. And I'm going to skip ahead to the summer of 1972, four years after Lance returned stateside from the war. But don't worry, we'll get to those years shortly, because there is a lot to unpack. I'm also pivoting here because I see 1972 as a kind of crux in the chronology as it relates to these cases. This year and what happens in this window of time, as you will see, speak volumes about Lance Voss, the man. But I think in order to fully contextualize and process the events and circumstances in the four years leading up to this year and in the four years following it, we need to start in the early summer. It was June 2nd, 1972, and the summer of love was over. The psychedelic zeitgeist of 1967, 68, and 69 had by and large cooled by the summer of 1972, and while many still clung to the era's tenets of turn on, tune in, and drop out, most young people were looking forward and not in America's rearview mirror. And in that spirit, the summer of 1972 was a relatively carefree stretch of somnolent, sunlit days for northern California beach towns like Santa Cruz, where the moon pulled Pacific tides inland, warm salt water slapping the sandy shores, colonies of seagulls knifing the coastline, hand-in-hand lovers wading the rolling surf, colorful kites swooping and popping in the windy coastal sunlight, the Santa Cruz boardwalk abuzz with carnival rides and brimming with kids and family enjoying the food and street performers. That evening of June 2nd, 17-year-old Antoinette Anino was walking the Santa Cruz shoreline with her boyfriend, her brother Harold, and her brother's girlfriend. It was a Friday night and they, like so many their age, were just hanging out, having a good time over a few drinks. The Santa Cruz beach and boardwalk were hotspots for young people and weekenders and were seen by locals as safe and family-friendly destinations. For her own part, Antoinette was beautiful, with an olive complexion and dark, friendly eyes. Having in the early years of high school worn her hair long with a short broom of bangs swept to the right, Antoinette now donned a smart and stylish bob that gave off a creative vibe. Indeed, while Antoinette's brother Harold was active in almost every sport Del Mar High School had to offer, Antoinette charted a somewhat different path and was instead active in her high school's creative arts department, where she served as program manager and photographer for their high school theater productions. That previous December, she helped design and produce a complex program for the upcoming play Lost Horizon. Her high school had been advertising the play in the local papers leading up to the opening night. A picture of her folding programs can be found at our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources case photos. It's little wonder that with her good looks and creative flair that at 17 she had a boyfriend, and at the same time it's not surprising that the two young lovers may have been given to the occasional squabble, which is what took place that night along the shoreline. While they argued, Antoinette's brother, Harold, and his girlfriend walked ahead along the beach. According to reports, Antoinette told her boyfriend to go on and meet up with the others, and she would catch up. But by the time her boyfriend, brother, and his girlfriend arrived at the pier, the boardwalk was closing, and she was nowhere in sight. After waiting, 
they set out looking for her beneath a kaleidoscope of carnival lights and incessant rattling of roller coasters making their final runs, calling out her name over the crowds, asking if anyone had seen her. No luck. They tried the beach, again quizzing couples and lovers and hikers and campers and partygoers and volleyball players and musicians and stoners and surfers huddled around beach fires. Still nothing. They yelled out in all directions, their voice dying in the low, constant roar of the ocean as it rolled in and out. Finally, they stopped searching at 1.15 a.m., and Antoinette's brother, Harold, phoned his mother from a payphone. She, in turn, phoned the police, who put out a bolo. Strangely, the police did not search the wharf, according to local reports. A little over two hours later, a young couple strolling the shoreline in the small hours of Saturday, June 3rd, spied something peculiar, something that looked as though it had just been washed ashore. They drew in for a closer look, their eyes trying to make sense of the figure they saw. And that's when it became clear. They were looking at the fully nude body of a young female, apparently dead. Shocked and alarmed, they alerted the nearest seaside security guard, who then called it in over the radio. Soon, authorities were on the scene, sweeping their flashlights and high beams along the coastline, looking for anything, for an explanation as to why this girl was dead and why she didn't have any clothes on. In due course, they identified the young woman as 17-year-old Antoinette Anino, the beautiful Delmar Jr., who worked as the photography manager for her high school's theater program. And while there were no immediate physical signs of trauma, oddities about the case abounded. Her clothing, for instance, was utterly absent, like it had never existed to begin with. Not so much as an errant sandal or a hair tie or a handbag. I mean, nothing, nothing was found. And yet, her jewelry was present. The late Ron Truitt, one of the detectives who worked the case, once remarked on Cold Valley that, quote, the biggest bugaboo in all of this is, where in the hell is her clothing, end quote. Later, either on June 3rd or June 4th, the coroner ruled that the cause of death was drowning. It was also speculated that her death may have been suicide by drowning. News of her death appeared in the many newspapers of San Jose and surrounding areas, and her body was readied for burial at the Willow Glen Funeral Home, a small but well-established family-run business at 1039 Lincoln Avenue in San Jose. At around 5 a.m. on June 5th, when it was still dark, the day Antoinette was to be interred, the owner of the Willow Glen Mortuary was alerted to some commotion near the window leading into the chapel of the mortuary. He then saw the figure causing the commotion, a tall white male dressed in all black with a flashlight, camera, and a knife. The perp was trying to get into the chapel through a window and had apparently removed the screen with his knife. That is when the owner called the police who then arrested the man. And that man was, you guessed it, Lance Jeffrey Voss. The only thing in the chapel at the time was the body of 17-year-old Antoinette Nino. In fact, the only body in the entire mortuary itself was 17-year-old Antoinette Nino. You can view the arrest record on our website under resources, clues, and case photos. Stories for why Lance was trying to break into the Willow Glen mortuary vary depending on who you ask. We know that Lance, in an interview with Lewiston Police Department following the discovery of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller's bodies, was asked about the incident. He shrugged it off saying it was, quote, a wrong place at the wrong time kind of situation, end quote. When I asked Clint about this break-in, he said that Lance told him that he had been at a party and was just cutting through a parking lot as a shortcut to get home. 
when I pressed Clint on this, noting that Lance was carrying a knife, a camera, and a flashlight, and wondering who goes to a party with that kind of gear, he said Lance was always carrying that kind of stuff with him. Also, the morning of June 5th when Lance was busted, that was a Monday at around 5 a.m., which means if he had been at a party, the party was on a Sunday night and must have been a rager having stretched into the following morning. I mean, yes, people throw crazy parties that roll from the night until the dawn all the time and on all days of the week, so that alone isn't strange. But what is strange is that for everything we know about Lance, he wasn't a party-going kind of guy. So I find Clint's explanation difficult to believe. According to the daughter of the man who owned Willow Glen Mortuary, her father asked Lance, what are you doing? Lance apparently said, I'm trying to get in to see my girlfriend one last time. Now, that is third-hand information from 50 years ago. But why would somebody make that detail up? I mean, what would be in it for them? So, I don't know how to weigh that. What isn't difficult to surmise from the concrete evidence, from the actual arrest of Lance Jeffrey Voss, from the police report itself, is that you have a man who was literally arrested breaking into a funeral home housing the body of a single individual, Antoinette Anino, who died under somewhat suspicious circumstances, and he had a knife on his hip, he had a camera, and he had a flashlight. This entire case, as opaque as some of it is, is the single most important case in all the cases we've looked at to date. Why? Because A, we have an actual arrest record, in writing, processed, official, no ambiguities. He was caught breaking into a mortuary at around 5 a.m. on a Monday morning with a flashlight camera and a knife. B, and for me, this is the most important aspect, this arrest reveals a behavior, his mind at work, a plan he put together, an impulse, a need, whatever you want to call it. It's caught right there in black and white on the report. He wanted to be with a young, dead girl. I'm sorry, but there's just no other way to get around that cold, hard fact. Now, in what manner he wanted to be with her remains unknown. As a lead FBI profiler had noted in the documentary Cold Valley, Lance, quote, clearly, end quote, had intentions to be with Antoinette. And at the end of the day, I agree. I mean, who breaks into a mortuary, especially with a knife, camera, and a flashlight? No one. That said, I did search newspapers across the United States looking for mortuary break-ins, looking especially for any others that might have occurred within Lance's known whereabouts. And each and every instance I found turned out to be a case of necrophilia. Now, we can't say with certainty that having relations with Antoinette Nino's body was his intention outright, but the behavior certainly tracks with known cases. And although I haven't found any other break-ins that occurred within his known whereabouts, I'm still looking. So stay tuned on that. Because Jackie Nichols had actually gone out to San Jose to investigate the Antoinette Nino case, I knew that I wanted to get her read on the situation and what it might tell us about Lance and his potential motives. But also, for me, the big question remains. Are we certain Antoinette's drowning was in fact accidental? Are we certain there wasn't any foul play? Do we have any satisfactory answer for why her clothes vanished into thin air? Those were among the questions I had for Jackie, so I checked in, and Gloria jumped on the call as well. So you went out to California to look into the case, and did you engage with any of the detectives who were originally on her death? I did speak with a detective there that had been involved at the time, and unfortunately, since I have just learned that he's passed away, it was still interesting to talk to a detective who had been involved at the time because his 
perspective was different than what I had anticipated. He was uh, somewhat of the perspective that Antoinette had been part of sort of the summer of love culture that was going on in the Bay Area. And he did not find it so improbable that she would have taken off all of her clothes and gone swimming. Whereas to me, I was like, when I read that information that this 17-year-old girl washed up on the beach nude, and then it was considered either an accident or a suicide attempt, I was like, okay, I could understand that if she had her clothes on. And that detective said, well, no, no, you got to understand. Back then it was, you know, peace, love, and freedom, and it wasn't unusual for people to just take all their clothes off and jump in the ocean. So, I don't know, it sounded odd to me, but that was his perspective, and he lived through that time, so I have to respect that. Did they check for, like, any sexual activity on the autopsy, do you know? They did, and there was a couple things about that that, uh, one, they did find sperm in her vagina upon autopsy. Uh, They did ask her boyfriend if they'd been sexually active, and he said no. I just want to jump in here real quick to say that that information about semen being found in Antoinette Anino, that was completely new to me. That information has not been shared publicly on any available documentary and is just being aired publicly here for the first time. You couldn't see my face in the interview, but I was fairly blown away by that and still try to hold my cool. With that said, let's jump back in. But again, you know, at that point, did he not want to say something, you know, about her virtue by admitting that they were? Unfortunately, that evidence can't be located. Gone down every avenue I could to see if that could be located, but uh, unfortunately is no longer in existence. But it is an anomaly that that was found, but her boyfriend said they weren't sexually active. The other part of that is they did check for any type of traumatic injury that would indicate sexual activity and there was none found but that in of itself doesn't mean there wasn't you know forced sexual activity or we know investigating sexual assault crimes that a lot of them don't leave a traumatic injury that you can be sexually assaulted and have no visible injuries it's very strange that they wouldn't have investigated further or at least corroborate you know i can see maybe the the young man like not wanting to cast her in a certain light or, you know, maybe get in trouble or he felt panicked by it or whatever. But, you know, it seems like it's really strange that that wasn't looked into a little bit more closely. And I I think because at that time, you know, there certainly wasn't the DNA testing or anything like that. It just simply was, there was sperm. There would be no way to say it was his or somebody else's. Mm, Okay. Then the other part of that is that the coroner ruled that an accidental death, either drowning or uh, accidental drowning or a suicide attempt, a completed suicide attempt. And so with both those rulings from your coroner, you're not going to have a criminal investigation. Okay, again, that detail that Antoinette had been sexually active was totally new to me, and it has not been a public-facing fact until now. But beyond that major detail, there's a lot of what Jackie revealed that I find both baffling and frustrating. For instance, the kind of shrugged off explanation for why her clothes were missing, that they were discarded in a hippie flower child moment, doesn't square, not at all. Antoinette and her boyfriend had just been arguing, hardly the time for a Woodstock butterfly moment of naked abandon. 
And even if that were the case, then I'm guessing that at least some of the articles of clothing would have been retrieved, so none of that makes sense, at least to me. But circling back to the fact that Antoinette had been sexually active and that her boyfriend denied that they had been intimate recently sends up all kinds of alarms for me. I mean, sure, he could have been lying, but to what end? How would lying about that help him or her? I just don't know. But the fact that the police and or coroner didn't even seem to consider the presence of semen to be possibly connected to her death, that to me is crazy if only because her entire wardrobe was gone. If her clothes were present, then maybe you could dismiss the sexual activity. But on the other hand, you're dealing with a dead girl whose clothes were not just gone, but seemed to have been removed from the scene. And finally, it would seem to me that when you arrest a man 48 hours later for breaking into the very funeral home in which her body lay and who's packing a knife, flashlight, and camera, don't you at that point start connecting the dots and look at this case differently? Well, not if the coroner rules the death an accidental drowning or suicide, then you don't because there's no opportunity to investigate. So for me, there are just layers of frustration here with regards to Antoinette's death, the handling of her autopsy, the ruling of the death, and how the latter forestalled the possibility of an investigation into Lance, who was again arrested literally a day after the coroner made his or her decision. Casting all of that aside for the moment, however, I want to drill down a bit on a few of the known knowns of the case. We know, for instance, that Antoinette was a junior at Del Mar High School, where she took up interests in photography and theater. Like so many things in these cases, theater and photography are becoming reoccurring themes. We know that her high school stood just 2.1 miles from Lance's apartment at the time, which was then located at 3201 Cadillac Drive, number 16, San Jose. We also know that Willow Glen Mortuary stood just five miles from his apartment. You can see a map of these locations on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under timelines and maps. Here's an adjacent known. 1972 is the same year that Lance applied to work for the Berryessa School District as a library resource aide. For some of you, the word Berryessa ought to ring a bell, and if it doesn't, put a pin in that word, Berryessa. That said, while it does not appear that Delmar High School was in the Berryessa School District, such a job would nevertheless have given Lance fairly close access and contact to children within that school district. Also this, remember way back when Clint said that Lance was the sort of guy who thought children should be seen and not heard? Yeah, well if that were the case, then why of all jobs in the world did he apply to a place filled with kids as an aide or a helper? And the biggest known of all is that Lance was arrested for breaking into the Willow Glen Funeral Home, which, by the way, has only experienced two break-ins in over 70 years of operation. The Lance Voss break-in and one other many years later where the perp tried to come in through the front door to do a cash grab. Of course, the unknowns eclipse the knowns in this case, partly because of the way Antoinette's death was handled, partly because of the passage of time, and partly because of circumstances. The main detective on the Anino case, Ron Truitt, has unfortunately recently passed, and there are very few family members or people who knew her still around, so it's been difficult to get other perspectives. But I do have some feelers out, so if I get someone willing to talk, I'll bring them on the show. Finally, at the risk of belaboring the point, I want to clearly underscore the significance of this case because it is markedly different than every other case we've looked at. This isn't speculation. This isn't me noodling on possible connections. This isn't I heard from someone who heard from someone else. 
this isn't something that Lance can deny because it happened. He was busted breaking into a funeral home. He can equivocate, deflect, prevaricate, explain, justify, rationalize, fictionalize, or fabricate. But at the end of the day, he was caught dead to rights breaking into a chapel in which lay a 17-year-old girl's body. It had been nearly a decade after the brutal murder of Diane Taylor, and Lance was once again physically tied to the space of another dead girl. To me, 1972 serves as a kind of flashpoint in these cases, because the events of his life between 63 and 72, taken together, they serve as a kind of crucible that shaped the man he became after 1972, as you will soon see. So what of those preceding years? What do we know? Well, we know that Lance failed the 10th grade, dropped out after the 11th grade, and enlisted in the Navy. Leaving the speculation of why he joined the Navy at 17 aside, let's just concede for the moment that Lance wanted to join up because he felt drawn to war, like so many of a certain ilk are. I mean in the most pragmatic sense, war is the most antisocial of antisocial contexts, wherein killing is not only sanctioned, but required. And for some who, let's say, harbored psychopathic preoccupations, war may have been attractive for opportunities to kill not just on the battlefield writ large, but beyond the battlefield, for the opportunity to prowl the streets and alleys and bars and brothels and clubs and opium dens and hotels and haunts of a foreign land, searching for potential victims in a place scrambled and upended by war, where laws and those who enforced them were broken, corrupted, derelict, defunct, or defective. If the Lewis Clark Valley and its two rivers and remoteness and vastness and multi-jurisdictional complexities made for a veritable playground for a serial killer, then the warscape of the Vietnam theater would have been a killer's dream. Curious if other serial killers had served in combat, I looked into it, if only cursorily. And turns out, yes, known serial killers, some of the most notorious in fact, went to war or were otherwise in active duty. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, enlisted in the army in 1971 and was stationed briefly in South Korea. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, enlisted in the Navy in 1969 out of high school serving on a supply ship. Ridgway later confessed that his obsession with women in the sex worker industry began with his service in Vietnam. The notorious Jeffrey Dahmer enlisted in the army in 1979 and was briefly stationed in West Germany before being booted for his alcoholism. Dennis Rader, or BTK, served in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970 and was stationed in Japan during the latter part of his service. Randy Kraft, or the Freeway Killer, like Dennis Rader, joined the Air Force in 1968 but was given a, quote, medical discharge, end quote, after he came out as gay to his commanding officers. Kraft was convicted of killing 16 men, many of whom were in the military. In other words, there is both precedent and context on that score. As for Lance, the high school dropout, he entered the Navy in January of 1965 as a seaman third class, the lowest rank in the Navy. It was an era of war in all forms. America was at war with itself, politically, racially, ideologically, culturally. And since the previous year with the Gulf of Tonkin incident, it was now at war with a faction of a small Asian country most white Americans had never heard of. In the United States, race riots spilled across the streets coast to coast, and at the same time, Huey helicopters bobbed over ridgelines and rice paddies and jungles of Vietnam, while ground forces traded machine gun fire with the nearly invisible Viet Cong. 
Lance trained at the North Chicago Naval Great Lakes Training Camp in March of 1965, and then in May of that year, he transferred to Pensacola for additional training before shipping out on the USS Vesuvius. A 460-foot-long ammunition supply ship powered by three dozen officers and some 244 crew members, the Vesuvius carried tens of thousands of pounds of ammunition and was engaged in 20 military campaigns during Lance's time aboard, supplying ships underway in the Western Pacific, the South China Sea, and the Gulf of Tonkin. The international radio call sign for the Vesuvius was November, Kilo, Delta, Echo. The call sign is represented visually by three international nautical flags assigned to those letters, November, Kilo, Delta, Echo. For the uninitiated, nautical flags or signals employ five colors only, blue, yellow, red, black, and white, in various patterns for 26 flags, one flag per letter of the phonetic alphabet. For sailors, especially those engaged in warfare, understanding these flag signals was critical particularly if conventional communication systems like radio or Morse code couldn't be used. It was also critical for sailors to understand the number of signals flying on any given vessel. For instance, here's a brief explanation I found on one of the numerous websites devoted to this body of knowledge. One flag signals are urgent or common signals. Two flag signals are used for distress and maneuvering. Three flag signals are for points of the compass, relative bearings, standard times, verbs, punctuation, and also general code and decode signals. Four flags are used mostly for geographical signals, names of ships, bearings, etc. Five flag signals are used to relate the time and position. Six flag signals are used to indicate the main cardinal directions, north, south, east, or west, in latitude and longitude signals. Seven flags are for longitudinal signals containing more than 100 degrees. Nautical flags are also used in nautical racing, which signal to the competitors what they are supposed to do. So, for instance, the signal flag for Victor, which is a red X on a field of white, means require assistance. The combination of the signal flags for Whiskey and Oscar mean man overboard, I require medical assistance. The flag for the letter X or X-ray is a blue plus sign on a field of white and means stop carrying out your intention and watch for my signals. Finally, I'll just add here that the Navy also used these signal flags to convey top secret information and codes to friendly vessels, and that is why this kind of signaling is often called the secret language of the Navy. Sailors privy to this kind of encryption would have held superior rank to Lance, but he would have known the basics even as a seaman third class, and given his interests and predilections, he may or may not have given the Navy's signaling system more than the average study for his rank. That said, even the basic flag's signaling alphabet and all of its known meanings seems, at least to me, to be fairly complex. You can find a picture of these flags on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under case photos, and a link for further information under articles and links. As it happens, Gloria tracked down one of Lance's shipmates years ago named Roger Korth, who remembered Lance. I knew I wanted to talk with Roger, so I reached out. I was still interested in what Lance was like as an enlisted sailor, and if he had any quirks or odd behaviors and the like. Oh, and by the way, we're also still trying to track down other sailors who may have known Lance and or served on the USS Vesuvius between 1965 and 1968. If you or anyone you know fits that description, please reach out. My name is Roger Court, and I met Lance about 57, 58 years ago aboard the USS Vesuvius. I had gotten to the Philippines and reported aboard the ship, and in the uh, course of time, I uh, 
wound up the telephone talker during replenishment support ship. This is either in 65 or 66, and Lance was one of the uh, bomb rollers on, on the back part of the ship. What does that job entail? Well, he, he was a, an able-bodied seaman. Mm-hmm. And on an ammunition ship, the, the grunts, as we like to call them, the guys that are not any officers, right. push around fins, bombs, hook them up to the winches and take them to the carriers, uh, the other ships, and they're kind of the working guys on the crew. And um, I met him there. He was a, a tall, quiet young man. And the only real interaction I had with him is... Only the guys that really were on good behavior got overnight liberties in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And we were able to get a bus ride to Medilla one time for a weekend. And I really didn't know Lance that well, other than seeing him aboard ship. He did his thing, I did mine. And uh, suddenly you're, you're in a very small group of people that are being given this privilege in those days of of being trusted enough to spend overnight time alone. Right. And uh, we met on the bus, and uh, we just had a good communication, and we decided to kind of team up, if you will, to, you know, I'll watch your back, you watch mine. Mm -hmm. And um, we got up to Manila, and the young man, I understand what you were attempting to do with your podcast, and, you know, the, the background of your writing about this, the, the young man that I knew then, he was a little younger than me. He was quiet. He was shy. He seemed intelligent. Even though at the time, you know, you're, you're not looking for an intelligent person to be with. I mean, we were going to have a good time. We were going to do all the kind of crazy things that sailors do in the Philippines, which we, <laughs> which we did manage to do. And probably about the craziest thing I ever did was drop water balloons out of the hotel. Sounds like you guys weren't joined at the hip the entire time. No. The only real interaction we've had is we were, I think, on about the seventh floor of the Medilla Hilton or whatever the hotel was. And there were a whole mess of uh, porters and waitstaff down underneath the trees, and we could hear them. The window was open. I don't know whether it was you or I that came up with the idea that it would be funny dropping water balloons. I'd never done it before in my life. But we, we just thought it would be kind of funny. I mean, it was hot, balmy, and we just lined up about four or five balloons and tossed them into the trees they were sitting under. It was just a wild, impetuous thing to do, and nobody got harmed. And yeah. Good, clean, stupid fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could do a lot worse, probably, in... Oh, yeah. 1965, 66 in, in the Philippines, so... More than about a five-minute episode, and it was all over, and I, I went over to my room and did my thing, and he did whatever he did. Uh, I imagine he stayed in his room. I don't know. If I were to, like, put pins in a map, like, places that Lance might have visited. Well, in four years, he might have gotten to Japan. Okay. He might have gotten to Thailand. Okay. I know we stopped in Honolulu twice on our way to or from, but only having been aboard from August of 65 to May of 67, I know we were in uh, Brewerton, Washington for about eight weeks, but our home port was in Port Chicago, California. 
Hmm. Okay. When we were stateside, that's where we were. We went down to uh, San Diego, I think, for three days one time. I don't remember whether we got off the ship or anything like that. I would imagine he could have gotten off and gone into Seattle or Canada or wherever was out there. So, in my conversation with Roger, I think you can see where I was heading with some of my questions. A. Did Lance have time to himself while on leave in Manila? B. What other places would Lance have had the opportunity to roam alone while on leave? And on the question of having time to himself, it sounds like he clearly had a lot of time on his hands away from Roger and presumably others. Where exactly he may have spent that time, of course, is an unknown and is almost certainly unknowable. We do know where the Vesuvius docked to offload and onload cargo or to give the sailors some leave. You can see a map taken from one of the ship's cruise books that more or less depicts these routes, and you can find that on our website snakeriverkiller.com under Timelines Maps. Because our team has been hitting the Vietnam years hard for the past several weeks, reaching out to sailors who served on the Vesuvius at the time, we have unearthed some fairly interesting information about Lance and his time in the service. So far, the sailors who have provided valuable information do not want to be on the podcast as of this recording, but I'm hopeful that that will change. If so, I'll let you know. All I can tell you is that I've heard from multiple sources that Lance was anything but a model sailor. I have been told that he frequently disobeyed orders and that he may have even gone AWOL at least once, perhaps more than once. I've also been told that Lance was an outcast amongst his shipmates, that he didn't fit in at all. Now, to be clear, this is secondhand info recalled over 50 years after the fact, and I have not seen any documentation to substantiate these claims. And on the other hand, Roger Corr thought Lance was a solid sailor, so I just don't know how to balance that information. If, however, Lance was in fact disobeying orders and getting into trouble and going AWOL, then that kind of behavior might square with Tina's hypothesis that Lance may have been a troublemaker during his teen years. But again, there's just not a lot of concrete information to go on, so I don't want to lean too heavily on these observations. As it happens, my dad's best friend, Steve Walters, also served in the Navy during Vietnam, so I gave him a ring just to get another perspective from a sailor who was willing to go on the record and talk to me, even though he didn't know Lance and served on a different ship. Hey, hey. Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? Old and decrepit. Well, that's how I feel, so we're in good company here, my friend. Um, <laughs> yeah, what years did you serve in, in the Navy? Uh, I was in from June of 67 till February of 71. What ship was it that you studied in the other one? The USS Vesuvius. So it spent its time in the Western Pacific and the South China Sea and docked frequently in um, Subic Bay in the Philippines. Did you ever spend time uh -huh. there? Yep, lots of time in Subic. When we're over there, we're stationed out of Subic. That's where we go and get our supplies. We spend 33 days in the Tonkin Gulf online, keeping the carrier fleets you know, full and going. And then we return back to Subic Bay to pick up more bullets, beams, and black oil to take down. And we spend about two weeks in Subic Bay and then head back down to Vietnam. And the city of Longapos next to it yeah. has 45,000 prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I understand. And there's like a, a very famous bar called Pauline's. Did, does that yeah. ring a bell? Pauline's, yep. It is. 
let me ask so the suspect in our in our show he got in a lot of trouble with the navy uh was that common uh, i've seen, seen a little bit of that going on okay what about going awol was that common well i know when i was in uh, when i was in boot camp i was standing guard out on the bridge where guys would try to escape and the guy was trying to escape and i tried to talk him out of it but it didn't work but yeah there was a lot of there was quite a bit awol stuff so one question i had was about the navy flags is that something you learned when you were in boot camp or in training like what you know diver down or uh man overboard and the, the different flags that flew and what the signs meant yeah pretty much uh-huh. one of the questions that i have about our suspect is how easy would it have been for a u.s sailor to kind of roam around along a and you know maybe um you know like i don't know like kill kill a native woman and get away with it i mean can you see that scenario as even feasible or would there have been too much of a native police presence and or shore patrol for anything like that to happen well i'm sure it happened once in a while brandon probably okay get ten thousand drunk sailors in the city shit's gonna happen so from steve i'm getting some confirmation that awol was a big deal that bad things could and probably did happen in a place like Alangapo, and that lance would have definitely known the naval flag alphabet and the meanings behind the various signals i mentioned the signals training here once again because it's one of those things that i think we ought to be paying attention to as we move forward in these cases so with his navy training and the war behind him high school dropout Lance washes up in the San Francisco Bay Area in early 1968, clutching a duffel bag of laundry and donning military-issue boots planted on civilian soil. Of all the times to be in San Francisco, California, the years between 1967 and 1969 would have ranked among the wildest. The porcelain cool young journalist Joan Didion had arrived on scene a year earlier. The perennially white-suited Tom Wolfe had just published the now-canonical electric Kool-Aid acid test. And it was the year the Beatles sang of how happiness is a warm gun. It was the time of the season. All the leaves were brown and the skies were gray. For some, it was a time for California dreaming, but for others, it was or would become a California nightmare. Like for Betty Lou Jensen, 16, and David Arthur Faraday, 17, who were shot to death just five days before Christmas in 1968, the killings would be linked to what would later be called the Zodiac Killer. The 1960s were bleeding out, it seemed, literally and figuratively, and those still standing had survived a decade of assassinations, coups, war, unrest, and wanton killing in so many forms. And Lance was there, riding the wave, taking it all in, having survived the war, Chicago, lucky to be alive, pleased no doubt with himself, despite what was becoming a pattern of total failure in his life, what with flunking 10th grade, dropping out of high school, and then getting kicked out of the Navy. By any measure, that is a dismal trajectory, but he always had his mother Jane, and she him. While Lance was on active duty, Jane and her husband Joseph Neputy moved from Chicago to Northern California, buying a home in Saratoga so Jane could be closer to Lance. As Voss settled into daily life in Northern California in late 1968, early 1969, 
news of killing still filled the newspapers. War, riots, police shootouts, and murder. On July 3, 1969, for instance, 12-year-old Deborah Lee Shelton hopped on her bicycle at her home in Aptos, California, and was heading down to the beach. Deborah's late father had been the publisher of the Saratoga Citizen, the paper for the town in which Lance's mother and stepfather were then living. That previous week at church, Deborah, or Debbie as she was known, had met, quote, an older guy, end quote, who said his name was Sherman. This older guy wanted to know if Debbie and maybe a friend would want to go ride mini bikes. If you are unfamiliar, mini bikes are essentially tiny motorcycles, as popular then as they are now. Debbie said, yeah, absolutely, she was interested. When the day came around to go riding, though, Debbie's mother, Marcia Shelton, resisted, worried about the dangers of Debbie riding a child-sized motorcycle, especially with someone she didn't know, even if he was from church. Debbie begged and begged, and finally, Marcia relented. Debbie then lit out from her house, and that was the last time she was seen alive. Her remains were found three months later in a wooded area near the Aptos Bridge on March 8, 1969. She had been bound with tape, strangled with her own underwear, and possibly raped, though this latter part was never confirmed on account of the body's decomposition. I mention Deborah Shelton here for a few reasons, some of which may seem obvious, like the fact that she was 12, like Christina White, and that she had evidently taken off on her bike, like Christina White and Kristen David that motorcycles were involved and that Lance was and remains a motorcycle enthusiast and that she was strangled with her own underwear, which in some ways is reminiscent of Diane Taylor's murder. But I mention her case here too because her body was found not six miles east down the shoreline from where Antoinette Anino's body would be found in three years time. And while I don't have any specific evidence linking Lance to Debbie Shelton's murder, it's a case that cannot be overlooked for all the reasons I've listed above. Oh, and if you think hers is a one-off, or that the murders in this area where Lance was living at the time stopped after Antoinette and Nino's death, you'd better think again, because in many ways, we're just getting started. The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media, LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Original music is written and performed by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, associate producers and investigators Gloria Boberts and Paul Dale, graphic designer and content contributor Samantha Sawyer, research consultant and criminologist Dr. Marianne White, and research assistant Tina Landry-Otti. Special thanks to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to check us out online where you can subscribe to the show and find resources, photos, timelines, articles, links, and more. Next time on The Snake River Killer. Is it pretty rare to have a necrophile-type killer? I wouldn't say it's uncommon. And I wonder with Lance if it goes back to his inexperience. I am not saying that he is responsible for what is called the Zodiac killings. However, he cannot be ruled out and it should be looked at. If you're looking at the Husky letters, right, and if you draw that connection, you know, it's not hard to make these tie-ins that says Lance could be the Zodiac. But it's even easier to tie connections to say he was there at the time. And inspired by. And inspired by certain aspects of the behavior.